He created the earth in seven days. No, make that six. He took a day off. Scholars valued his wisdom at age 12. His legend precedes him the way lightning precedes thunder. He has more followers than Twitter has accounts. He likes to take long walks on water. He is the most fascinating guy on the planet. All right. Hey, Mountain. Good to see everybody. Uh, I'm Nathan, and uh, it's always good to be together. Continuing in this series, as you just heard, the most fascinating guy on the planet. Oh, my goodness. What? Uh, hello, Nathan. Well, hello, Rena. How, how are you? Guys, this is Rena Durapandian, my friend. She leads our Mountain Kids Ministry over at the Edgewood Campus. I'm not hello, sure everyone. why she's here right now, though, because I'm kind of trying well, to... Well, I came because I am so excited about what you're doing, and I just wanted to thank you personally. Uh, well, tell me more. Like, uh, You're welcome, but well, what are you so excited about? Well, I'm excited that this big new thing that you're doing with this um, new uh, club that you're starting, it's an awesome thing. And I heard that you're starting a Rena club, which I am so excited oh. about. Oh. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah, like, and it's so awesome because then I get to meet other Renas in the Hartford County because I don't know any other Renas. Oh, and I no. can do the trampoline, we can do scrapbooking, yeah. we can do the whole Jesus Rena, thing. I'm, yeah, that would be awesome. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I think I'm going to disappoint you, but I think you maybe got some bad information. What bad information? So we're not actually starting a Rena club. The Bel Air campus is moving to our new home in the... Arena Club. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I'm sorry, but we're really excited about that. Okay. And uh, it's going to be great. If you guys don't know, if you haven't heard that yet, that's what we're doing. I was going to tell them anyway. Uh, the, you know, we're doing that. Check out the website and also uh, Vision Nights, okay? That's where you want to get to. Anyone who's remotely interested in this thing, get to these Vision Nights. One of them was April 2nd. The other one will be April 9th. You could come. Okay. Maybe there'll be Sounds another exciting. arena there. Yeah. We could get started with your project. Okay. but um, yeah, that does sound exciting. Yeah, yeah well, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Yeah. But, but in the future, you can think about that. It's we'll, a great idea. Okay, good. Yeah. I'll keep, take that yeah. into consideration. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so I kind of need to get back to the sermon. So don't you need to get over to the Edgewood campus? Kids? Oh, yes, Martin Kids. I work there. Yeah. Sorry. Thank All right. you. Bye-bye. Right. Rena, everybody. everybody, give her a hand. Man, that was awkward. I hope I didn't disappoint her too much, but... um. Anyway, do you know that uh, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman all wear Jesus pajamas? <laughs> he is the most fascinating guy on the planet. When Jesus pours milk on his Rice Krispies, they remain silent out of respect. <laughs> he can blink faster than the blink of an eye. He can touch MC Hammer. He can talk about Fight Club. He is the most fascinating guy on the planet. He counted to infinity twice. 911 has Jesus listed as their emergency contact. He can get Chick-fil-A on Sundays. He is the most fascinating guy on the planet. Last weekend, we talked about how the world sees Jesus and the implications for how you and I see Jesus. This week, we're, gonna, we're calling it a man for all people, people, and we're talking about how Jesus sees the world and how he sees you and me and how that changes the way we see each other. 
Uh, think about this word today, the word icon. You know what an icon is? It's a small little picture or image that represents something much bigger, right? Some of the best-known icons ever, okay? We got this, the good old uh, hard disk, floppy disk, whatever it is, going strong, represents save, right? You got a phone. You know what this icon represents? Phone, even though it's also kind of old technology. But um, we got this one. You know what this one means? Like, right? It means like approval, tribute to the enduring influence of the Fonz or something. I don't know. Does anybody actually do this anymore? But I do it on my phone. Uh, an emoji is an icon. A logo is an icon. A person can be referred to as an icon. We talk about Hollywood icons. We got this guy, right? That guy, right? An icon. He represents what? Adventure, manliness, being cool, whatever. So did you know that icon is a Bible word? It is. Uh, check, out, check out the screen for the next minute or so. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right. And that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. Okay, so page one of the Bible, book of Genesis, God created, right? He created the heavens and the earth and the water and the land and the sea and the animals, the plants, and he, he called it all good. He said, this is good. And then we read this in verse 27. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then, then God put these humans in charge of all the rest of that stuff. And he said, care for it the same way that I would. And he looked at them and he stepped back from it all. And he said, no. and he said this is very good. So that, that Hebrew word, selim, that was mentioned in the video, gets translated image or idol. And the Greek version, the New Testament version of that word is the word icon. So I think we're going to show it there. So you have... This, this is where we get this word. So the Bible comes right out of the gate, and it says this astounding, amazing truth about you and me and every other human being. And that is one thing you've got to hear today is we are created. You and I are created in God's image. Sometimes we talk about this. The Latin uh, phrase for this image of God is imago Dei. I think it's just a beautiful phrase. I know some churches have named themselves after that. Um, I love our name, Mountain, and it was sort of, you know, chosen for us practically because we're in, on this place that's tens of feet above sea level. We sort of had to have that name. But anyway, we are created in God's image. Uh, what is, but the question is, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? We get a little glimpse of part of what it means, I think, through heredity and DNA. I have two daughters, okay, and uh, they are both a great mix of their mom and me in different ways, but they're each like us in different ways as well. Generally speaking, Elsa 
my oldest, we have a picture. She is created in my image more on the inside. She is wired like me. She looks, thank God, more like her mom, okay? And she, but she acts like me. She, we see the world similar, similarly. I'm in her head. I can kind of predict her next move. Um, now, Addie, on the other hand, my youngest, she is wired up more like her mom. And bless her heart and pray for her, she looks just like her daddy. Thankfully, a much cuter little female version. But, I mean, over and over, people see her around here and they're like, well, I know whose kid that is. So, let me show you the power of this. Um, so, Conan O'Brien used to do this gag on his show where he would take pictures of two people and mix them up and say, this is what it would look like if their DNA were combined into one person. I always thought that was funny. A couple years ago, I found an app that does the same thing. Okay, so here's a couple of examples. This is our lead pastor, Ben Kacharis, our buddy Ben. Okay, and this is his lovely wife, Carla. And this is what it would look like if you combine their DNA. Okay, that's what all their kids, three kids look like. Um, Here's another fun one. This is my pal, Luke Erickson. You guys know Luke. My other buddy, Kirk Bolin. Now check out the combination. Look at that. Looks like a great guy right there. All right, now check this one out. This is me. Okay, this is my daughter, Addie. Okay, now, you ready for this? (laughs) The funny thing about this is it doesn't really change much. It just adds like the facial hair. Let's go back and forth between those last two a couple times. Can we do that? No, not that one, the other two. Look, go back and forth. (laughs) Like it barely changes. Poor kid. She looks just like me. She's created in my image. And what the Bible wants to point out to all of us is that this is also true about you and God. Isn't that amazing? Except even more so, even deeper. And, you know, like they say where I'm from, we are the spitting image of God. We are the selim. We are the icon of Yahweh, God of creation. And it's not really so much about how we look. It really is about how we are. And it just has huge implications for us. It, it means that we are his and he claims us. It means that we are invaluable and precious and unique. It means that we are created to be like him. To, we're created to create. We're created to love like God. We're created to, you know, to exist in community as God does. But here's the problem. The plot twist, right, the moment in the story when conflict enters is that we haven't always lived up to this. We have traded in our true identity over and over again for false ones. We have chosen our own way, invited sin into the world. So now even the best of us, as Scott McKnight says, he he calls us, we're cracked icons, right? We're these image bearers of God, but we're walking around with some cracks and some chips and held together with, you know, with some duct tape. we, We don't always accurately or faithfully represent our father, which is why ultimately God planned to send his son, the new Adam, right? The perfect, um, the true icon, in flesh, and bl- in flesh and blood, walking among us, Jesus of Nazareth, the true and perfect icon of God. So it's like, it's like the same way you look at a little icon. Like everybody knows this icon here, right? Right? You look at this simple little three circles. But look, it represents a mouse, the animal. It represents a certain cartoon mouse with a certain personality and a man, Walt Disney, and his dreams and schemes and his story and all these other characters and stories. It represents toys and childhood and theme parks and a business empire, right, and magic and vacations and family memories and on and on. Think of all that is represented and contained in this little icon. 
Here's another one. Think about how much is just represented for so many people in this little simple symbol. And just if so, if you look at a, like one little icon and re- realize that it just contains all this emotion, all this history, all this meaning, all this purpose. The Bible teaches that it's like that with Jesus. You look at this human being, this real man in real history, and understand that he represents and points to and kind of holds within himself the truth about the infinite creator God. That's amazing. Colossians chapter 1 says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so a big part of what makes Jesus the most fascinating and the most important guy on the planet is that through and by him, you and I are called back to our true identity, our original purpose to represent the creator God, our father, to represent him to each other in this world. And there's levels to this. Like as individuals, we are created in the image of God. And corporately, we are created to be like God. We are called the body of Christ in the New Testament, right? We all have a part to play. We all have a role. Christ is the head. Another analogy that's used is we are the bride of Christ. He's the groom, and we together are his holy bride, the church. So we should see ourselves and and everyone else really in this way, primarily as icons of God, pointing to who and how he is. But that, like, how do we do that? It sounds really difficult to see everyone that way, if not impossible. We, we don't do it by closing our eyes, running away. It's, I was thinking of different analogies. It's like we need some new glasses, right? Some Jesus glasses to see, see everything through. But I was like, you know what? Even better than that, take it deeper. We need eye surgery, right? We need like spiritual LASIK, right? Even think about even Deeper than that, we need an eye transplant. We need Jesus' eyes in us. And then actually, if you just keep on tracing it back, it gets down to the heart. It's what's in our heart and mind. This is the second thing I want to say today. What you see is shaped by what's in your heart and your mind. It determines what you actually are going to see. Think about the way we see people and the way we look at each other. We love to slap labels on each other, don't we? It's so easy. We love to categorize we do this by age, by physical characteristics, you know, fat, thin, whatever we want to say, race and ethnicity, something someone has done, right, that we let define them forever, a group, some group they belong to, whether by their choice, like, oh, Democrat, Republican, whatever, or by our choice, like, oh, that's, that's a nerd, that's a jock, that's whatever, by their job, by their socio, socioeconomic status, like rich or poor, whatever, and then... We add, on top of these labels, they come with all these different assumptions, right, that, that they bring with them. And this stuff is so deeply ingrained. Some of it is just pounded into us through the years. Some of it is c- cemented in our hearts through experiences, sometimes really difficult experiences, traumatic stuff. It is hard. If you come from generations and generations of, you know, never trust the police or black people this, or white people that, or you know what really matters about somebody, what really matters is how hard they work, or how smart they are, or how much money they have, or whatever it is, it's hard to overcome that stuff. I'm not even saying that all of our labels are always inaccurate or unfair, but even the nice ones, they still obscure the most important part of who someone is, which is that they're an icon, an image bearer 
of God. And our labels sort of give away what's in our heart. I'll tell you another Addy story. Um, we were down at an Orioles game a couple years ago, and there was this homeless man outside the game, and I had seen him at another game before too, and he wears like a bandana um, on his head, and he was kind of kind of dirty and rough looking, you know. And uh, Addie said, just in this the innocent way that a four-year-old or whatever says, she was like, Dad, look, there's a pirate over there. <laughs> she, she thought he was a pirate, and she didn't have any malice in that. And I was just thinking, you know, that's her frame of reference. That was her assumptions based off what she observed, the label she put on him. Now, I knew differently, so I thought, you know. Uh, and so do, do, was mine more correct because I have more worldly knowledge, you know, and I knew a little more about what was probably in his story. I mean, maybe, but also I think in a way maybe her assumptions were truer than mine because she was not stuck trying to see through as many layers and layers of labels and assumptions as I was. And I think Addie, when she looked at that man, she got a lot closer to just seeing straight through to the icon, the selim, the image of God in him. Just think about how Jesus saw people. I mean, in Scripture, just look at it. The, the calling of the first disciples. Other people saw a bunch of regular Joes, a bunch of fishermen, nobodies, youngs, teens, young adults, whatever. Jesus saw his inner circle, his best friends. He saw missionaries and world changers. The demon-possessed, right? These people that were struggling. Others saw people who were dangerous and crazy and to be feared. Jesus saw hurting people, needed healing. Lepers. Other people saw people who were unclean, disgusting, avoid them, don't get contaminated. Jesus saw hurting and lonely people in need of his touch. There was this Roman centurion one time. Other people saw him as a political enemy, representative of their oppressors. But Jesus saw a man who was reaching out for help and for healing. A paralyzed man on a mat. His four friends carried him in. They dug through a roof other people, to get him to the feet of Jesus. Other people saw line cutters and sermon interrupters and you know, roof vandalizers. Jesus saw people desperate and courageous enough to just push through and go to great lengths to get to him. The crowds that gathered, other people saw traffic and trouble and pitiful masses that needed to be sent home. Matthew 9, 36 says, but when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, he, then he said he saw a plentiful harvest waiting for God to show up. There's this man with a shriveled hand on a Sabbath day. Other people saw a chance to reinforce, to kind of enforce their religious rules. Jesus saw a chance, again, to heal. King Herod Others saw this powerful leader to be feared. Jesus saw a punk who needed to be called out. Luke 13, they're like, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He says, Jesus says, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. There was this disgraced Samaritan woman one time. And... Uh, other people would have seen her as an outcast, a sinner. Jesus saw her as an icon. He saw her as a potential friend. And he saw in his 
approach of her an opportunity to tear down walls and to build bridges. Children would come around Jesus and other people saw them as a nuisance. Jesus saw them as treasures and even sometimes examples for the adults to follow. Soldiers mocking him and beating him and eventually killing him. Other people saw just evil, evil men. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They really, they really don't even understand what they're doing right now. Peter, other people saw this spectacular failure. Jesus saw a leader. Paul, people saw a murderer, persecutor of the church. Jesus saw the ultimate turnaround story. Even dead people in Jesus' path sometimes. Other people saw death. They saw dead people. They were dead. They saw the end of the story. But Jesus saw opportunities for God's resurrection power to be displayed and the beginning of new chapters of a bigger story. And we could go on and on like this. So the task before us, I think, and this is if I could give you homework this week, it would be to read or reread these stories. In, in, in the approach to Easter, take these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read them. And just reflect and take note of how Jesus sees people. How does he see people? And if we could put ourselves, just offer ourselves up, put ourselves on the operating table and say, God, do some surgery on me, on my eyes and on my heart. Help me to see people as you do. As, as we begin to see people more as Jesus does, uh, we don't get to choose, by the way. We don't get to sort of say, yeah, I, I can see children like Jesus does, but not Muslims. We don't get to say, yeah, okay, I can, I can see people of different political choices like that, but never could I see someone of different sexual choices like that. You know, I, that's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept the one and judge and shun the other. No, it's, it's an all or nothing deal. Jesus is a man for all people. And he says the first and most important thing we should see in every single human is that they are an icon of God. The labels are, at worst, false assumptions that divide us and stir us up, stir up fear and hatred in us. And that at best, even at their best, even when they're accurate, they are secondary characteristics that pale in comparison to the identity that we all have primary identity as image bearers of God. I was thinking about this. I'm not like a graphics guy. I'm not good with that stuff, but I've done enough basic stuff. I know there's a, when you're putting graphics over top of each other in a computer program, you can, there's a thing you can do called bring to front, right? You click on it and you can bring it, bring it to the front. And it means that image is the one that's going to come forward and everything else is going to get behind that. I was thinking about it. It's what you see first, you know? Let's think about how that's what we need to do with people. All this other stuff is there. We're not denying that they have a ethnicity or that there's different things about us that we notice. Some of them are good and, and some of them are bad. Some of them are true and some of them are false. But the thing we need to do is bring to front the icon piece of everyone we meet. Because this is the characteristic that we all share and that's the most important one. One more thing we have to say about this is that Jesus, he did, he did that with all of us, and he didn't just see us differently and leave it there. He acted on it, right? He moved in. He moved toward. And the thing we, want, we need to know is that truly seeing people differently 
will always lead to acting differently, behaving differently toward people. We see it with Jesus. We see it with the apostles. We see it with heroes and examples of our faith then and now. Real faith always leads to action. It's just how it is. So, I mean, all our cards on the table, here's some places where this is playing out in my life, okay? Race and ethnicity. I like to think that I'm pretty much, you know, really good at that one. All kinds of friends and people, you know, I, I think, oh, I'm not, I don't struggle in that area. And then the other day I'm driving and there's a guy and he's making me mad. And I drive by him and I look at him and I make some judgments. And I'm like, oh, God's still got some work to do on me there. Age, I do the same thing. I put people in a box based on being too young or too old. You know, I think about mean people. People are just mean. And I just label them, and I want to be mean back to them, right? I want to, sometimes I just want to continue that cycle of violence, and it never works. I think about whiny people. I, you know, I see, I see one of them coming, and I think, oh, there's, that's a whiny person, and here we go, right? I tell my girls the one thing. I, they think I'm allergic to whining. That's what I told them. Um, People who always want something from me, like, oh, I slapped that label on, and I, I want to just avoid them. People who have failed me or let me down, right? I struggle not to define them by that. I struggle to renew and refresh and trust them again. All right, let's get really real. There's a guy in my neighborhood in the general area where we live. He's on the sex offender list, okay? How you like that? How's that for a label? How am I supposed to treat him? Am I supposed to avoid him? Tell my daughters that's an evil man right there. You know, he's kind of beyond the reach of God's grace. Or with prayer and with appropriate boundaries and precautions and all that stuff, am I to love him and serve him and move toward him because he is an icon of God. He's an image bearer of God. Here's another one. Attractive women. Okay, springtime is coming. Out come the body parts, right? Here we go. Now, will I allow myself to see women as objects of fantasy or as icons of God? This single thought has been the number one most helpful weapon in my life against that battle uh, against lust, you know? Just to think that every woman that I see is, whether she presents herself or sees herself this way or not, she is primarily an image bearer of God and a precious daughter. And my sister, you know, a precious daughter of our father, a precious daughter of God. So that helps me to refuse to look at images that are going to present her in any other way. And these are the kinds of things where this is where the rubber meets the road on this stuff. I, I just know that the proof of how I see people is actually how I think about people and how I act toward people. That's where it's proved. Scripture teaches that we, quite simply, we are to see Christ himself in every person. We should see, we should, and then we should act accordingly. Matthew chapter 25, getting toward the end of Matthew's gospel. 
It says, talks about when Jesus returns to sort it all out one day. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, you know, come, those of you who are blessed, come into your inheritance. There's a kingdom prepared for you since the beginning of time. And you know what? When I was hungry, you gave me food. And I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And it says, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we do that? We didn't see you. And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters... You did for me. And then he'll say to the ones on the left, depart from me. Evildoers. Cursed. Because I was hungry, you didn't give me any food. I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. I needed clothes, you didn't give me any. I was sick and in prison, you didn't look after me. And they're going to ask the same question. Lord, when? And he's going to say, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, think about who is least in your estimation. You didn't do it for me. And these sobering words, it says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteousness to eternal life. Mother Teresa says, said this, her amazing example, right, of service, ministry. She said, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry, Jesus. I must feed him. This is sick, Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. Now that's simple and it's profound. So maybe you're no Mother Teresa, okay? But here's one very practical application of this. Easter service is coming up. We um, we put our all into every single weekend service that we ever do. But we sort of unapologetically go the extra mile uh, for, the, for Christmas and Easter services. So many people around here have spiritual stories that just begin with, you know, a friend or a family member, they brought me to the Easter service. And God begins to do amazing things. So <clears throat> here's a challenge. In the coming weeks, see the people in your life at home, at work, in your family, at the grocery store, wherever it is, not not judging them, but having compassion on them. See the people who need Jesus, people who need church, community. And would you have the courage and the sort of the holy audacity to invite them to Easter services? We did these. You should have gotten one of these little bring 12 cards, okay? This is what this is all about. Um, One of our, our elders were meeting And one of them was like, you know, I just feel like God's telling me to bring 12 people to Easter services. And they got to talking. They got excited about that. I feel like God was doing something in that conversation. They all decided to commit to that. That has rippled out into our staff. And we're just saying, let's let's challenge the whole church. Bring 12 people. That doesn't mean like half-heartedly invite 12 people and hope one of them shows up. You might have to invite 50 people, okay? There's, I don't know, there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 disciples. There's 12 Easter services at Mountain this year. What if you brought 12? It's going to be an amazing celebration of the resurrection. You know, Jesus didn't cheat death. He beat it fair and square, right? He's the most fascinating guy on the planet. See, you've got to see people who need to hear that message. 
in a compelling way, who are far from God, who are disconnected, whatever, if you see them as if, what if, it, what if you looked at them as if they're your own kid, your own parent, your own best friend, who is far away? I think then you will act if you see them that way. There's a million other things you can do other than invite them to Easter services, but this is one. You know, Ben asked me to tell y'all he's doing this. He said he currently already has half of his 12 signed up. They're coming. I'm way behind that right now, but I'm going to do this too. I'm telling you, the pastor's giving you permission. Trick them, beg them, pay them. I don't care. Just get them here. Really. Just get them here. Uh, So take these cards. Use them if you would. You can turn them in. So if you want to put 12 names on them, um, turn them in like a prayer request. And if you need to remember, we're not going to follow up with these people or track them down or anything, but we are going to pray. The follow-up is your job. The inviting is your job. So if you want to turn that in and make it a prayer, and we're going to be praying over all these names. Uh, and if you, need, if you need to remember it, take a picture of it first or write it down twice so you can know uh, kind of who your, your Bring 12 folks. So I don't know. Um, the reason we say this is because we know that those of us Many of you know, those of us who've been invited and included and enfolded into the love of God through this community and through other Christ-centered communities, we know this truth, that when you are seen differently by someone, it changes the way you see yourself, doesn't it? And that when you understand how God sees you, the loving God that we know through Jesus, it actually it changes everything, changes your whole life. Uh, it's almost April. You guys done your taxes yet? You know, when Jesus does his taxes, he claims the whole world as dependents. <laughs> he is the most fascinating guy on the planet. He's Lord and Savior. He's a man for all people, and he invites us into his abundant life. And part of that invitation is for us to see people as he does and to treat people as he does, all people. That's the invitation. I hope we'll all accept it in the coming week and and really for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. God of love, thank you for this time together, uh, the freedom to gather in your name and uh, for Jesus. Lord, would you change our eyes Help us to see the world and to see people as you do. Help us to see the icon, cracked as they may be, the icons, the images of you in every person. And Lord, would you be not only in our eyes, change our hearts and our minds, and and Lord, be in our hands and our feet and our mouths as we go out and serve and invite and uh, speak your truth through, through all that we say and do. Uh, Lord, fill us with your love. And thank you for creating us in your image. What an amazing blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.